Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. A couple of years ago, a cop was shot dead on a deserted pier in the tiny nation of Belize. The only other person there that night was a frightened young woman found covered in blood. By all appearances, it was an open and shut case. But not in Belize, where this woman was connected to a mysterious billionaire who basically runs the place. Justice will not be served in this case. She's gonna get away with it. Or will she? White Devil, a Campside Media original. Listen wherever you get your podcasts. This episode of Canada Land is brought to you by Douglas, a mattress that is trusted by more than 200,000 Canadians from coast to coast to coast. It's a great mattress at a very reasonable price point. Comes with a 20-year warranty and a great deal for our listeners. Douglas is giving you a free sleep bundle with each mattress purchase. Get the sheets, pillows, mattress, and pillow protectors free with your Douglas purchase today. Visit douglas.ca slash CanadaLand to claim this offer. That is douglas.ca slash CanadaLand. Hey, I need you to pay close attention to this message. It is not an ad. This is about CanadaLand and this is about you. You need to know that the news crisis is about to get a lot worse. You've heard about the layoffs. We're about to have news closures. And it's very likely that we're going to be seeing the defunding of the CBC. Where are you going to get your information from? What can you do about this? You can support CanadaLand. We need you to. And so for this month and this month only, you can become a CanadaLand supporter and get everything our supporters get for just $2 a month. That is an almost 80% discount. The clock is ticking on this. It disappears at the end of the month, and then we will not offer it. We need your support. We need to keep news coverage alive in Canada. Go right now to canadaland.com slash join. And thank you. I had this silly idea about Me Too. After watching the movement erupt and witnessing all these variations on a theme, like what can an accuser do with accusations? What happens when they go through HR? What happens when they go to the cops? What happens when they sue? What happens when they just blast what they have to say on social media? And after watching all the different versions of that play out and seeing how miserable the outcomes usually were for the accusers, mostly women, in in just about every iteration, I came to the conclusion that the best option for victims, for survivors of sexual assault and misconduct, is journalism. My perspective on this is, of course, pretty specific and limited. But in reporting on the Gomeshi story, the women who had the best outcomes were the original sources, the women who told me their stories but never went to CBC Human Resources or to the cops or to a lawyer. These are women who never took the stand, women whose names you still don't know. Those are the women who fared the best, who got what they wanted out of speaking up, 
And what they wanted, first and foremost, was to warn other women about this guy. They got that. And yes, they wanted justice. None of those women told me they wanted to see Gameshi locked up. But the fact that the whole country glorified and celebrated the guy who had done those things to them, well, that can make the whole world feel rotten and wrong. So the fact that he lost his fame and his platform, that was a kind of justice. They were not invisible. What happened to them did matter. And then later, when the Me Too hashtag exploded and hundreds of other survivors of dozens and dozens of other men spoke up, often through the pages of newspapers, through reporters who vetted their claims, they got some kind of justice too. It was imperfect. It was messy. It cost them. But it was a hell of a lot more effective than, than going through the cops or courts or corporations. And my idea was, this is the best thing that we have to deal with this. This is a job for journalism. But I guess it was a silly idea. The news stories have really slowed down. I'm pretty sure it's not because the abuse has stopped. I think maybe the press is losing interest. And truthfully, truthfully, the reporting was never sufficient. Mostly dealt with famous guys. I mean, what if your abuser does not happen to be a celebrity? Of course, there is one reporter in Canada who never cared whether abusers were celebrities or not. There is a reporter who showed me a different way that journalism could tackle this challenge, who dedicated herself to a totally different kind of Me Too expose. Robin Doolittle proved the problem in data. Her work in the Globe and Mail, in which she demanded previously unknown statistics from police forces across Canada, it documented that even when accusers do go to the cops, and they usually don't, one in five cases gets thrown out as unfounded by police officers who themselves do not understand the laws that they're supposed to be enforcing. Robin found a different way to use journalism to progress Me Too. So when I heard that Robin was writing a book about Me Too, that's what I was expecting. But it's not what I got. The book is titled Had It Coming, What's Fair in the Age of Me Too? And it has a lot of focus for what's fair for men accused of sexual misconduct and rape and harassment. Robin is kind to me in the book when she writes about the Gameshi case. I've got no complaints there. There are other things in this book that I disagree with. And there are things that I got to tell you, I just don't understand where she's coming from. And Robin is a journalist who I really want to understand what she has to say and where she's coming from, which is why... I'm so grateful to her that she will be joining me in a moment in our Toronto studio to talk about it. And she is not shy about getting into it with me. Wait for it. This episode of Canada Land is brought to you by 4,699 of the most powerful and influential people in this country. These are not billionaires or politicians or power brokers. These are mostly regular people who give a few bucks to us every month, but they are objectively powerful and influential people because they pay for 100,000 other people to get our podcasts every single week. They paid for our Thunder Bay podcast, which was downloaded one and a half million times all over the world. They paid for that story to be told. They pay for the news stories and the investigations on our website, which have been read over 2 million times 
in the past year alone. It's not a large number of people, 4,699 people, but that's the impact they have. So yes, these are influential people. If you're one of them, if you support us on Patreon, I want you to know that that's what you've done. Each one of you has bought our content, our podcasts, our stories, our information. You've bought that for dozens, hundreds, thousands of other people. When we report things that would otherwise be left unknown, when we keep a watchful eye on the media, when we investigated powerful people and organizations that other news outfits don't look into, you paid us to do that. And now that information is part of the public record forever. Thank you. Oh my God, thank you for doing that. Thank you for this job. I'm basically unemployable uh, at this point anywhere else. So thank you for this job. Thank you for giving my colleagues here at Canada Land Jobs. Uh, you know, life kind of just gets mundane. Um, things that are special start to seem ordinary. And every now and then I catch myself and I have to shake my head and just recognize how lucky I am and how grateful I am to do this work. Thank you. Now as for the rest of you. People, it's that time again. It is crowdfunding month here at Canada Land. Every other month of the year, the other 11 months, we just make podcasts and report news for you. And we give it away to everybody for free. No paywalls on anything ever. And no spiel. Almost no spiel. The only pitch that you'll hear from us the other 11 months of the year is at the very end. If you like what we do, please support us on Patreon. That's it. But for one month, this month, we crowdfund. We try to get the rest of you to support what we do. We ask you to go to patreon.com slash CanadaLand and do something that I must recognize is very strange. I have to acknowledge this. It's weird to just voluntarily give us money for podcasts and news that you get anyhow. It's a strange thing that we ask you to do, but people do it. And the average level that they do it at, the average level is $5 a month. U.S. dollars, by the way. Patreon still does not support Canadian dollars. But yeah, that's it. Five bucks a month. That's like one fancy coffee or one unfancy sandwich a month. That is what most people give us. And what I'm going to do today, before we start the show, before I talk to Robin Doolittle, it happens to be a very good uh, and sometimes contentious talk, what I do on this episode of Canada Land every year is take some time to tell you why you should become one of our patrons. And I truly believe that you should. I'm going to prove it to you. I'm going to tell you why we are worth your support. And the way that I'm going to do that is uh, I'm going to tell you some of the things that we did in the past year that make us worth it. Then I'm going to tell you some of the things that we want to give you as a sign of our appreciation for your support. Finally, today, I'm going to announce a new series that we want to make and that we will make if you agree. You know, you, you agree by supporting us. Uh, you agree with us that this needs to get made. That's how it works. It's like an annual referendum on what this media company should do next. So let's start. What have we done in the last 12 months? Did we earn our pay? Did we do what we promised our funders that we were going to do? How do I feel about the last year? Listen, uh, there has to be honesty in this conversation we have every year. And looking back on the last 12 months, there are things I don't feel great about. I don't feel great about my health. I feel like I haven't been taking care of myself. Uh, it's been a long time since I've been on any kind of an exercise regimen. 
And I resolved to stop eating meat or stop eating as much meat. Uh, and, you know, it's a health thing, but it's also because I'm not feeling great about climate change and I feel powerless and I want to do something about it. You know, like stopping eating meat is something that people could do about it. But the thing is, I'm anxious about climate change. And when I'm anxious, I, I, I eat poorly. So, you know, you can see it's a vicious cycle. I, I, I don't feel good about that. I mean, there's other stuff. I don't feel good. Uh, I don't feel like I've been a great friend. You know, life just gets so busy. And the longer that you wait to return an email from a friend or, or invite somebody over, the more awkward it is to re-engage with them, you know, and then before you know it, you've, you've, you've lost that friend, you know, and the older I get, the harder it is to make new friends. So you know, I don't feel good about that. How do I feel about work? How do I feel about this, about the kind of host I've been, about the kind of reporter I've been, the kind of publisher, the kind of boss, uh, the kind of news org that we've been running? How do I feel about how we've spent your money? Guys, I feel really good about that. In the last 12 months, we released Thunder Bay, the podcast that we made with Ryan McMahon, and it is the best thing that we have ever done. And we made a commitment to the people of Thunder Bay to not be the kind of journalists who parachute in, who tell their tragic stories and then just disappear. And we've honored that commitment. I'm proud to tell you that we have been back and back again uh, one of the things that we did is uh, we partnered with Journalists for Human Rights on a program to teach young Indigenous people in Thunder Bay how to tell their own stories. Ryan went there and held an intensive podcasting workshop with these amazing kids. He developed a curriculum for them. Our managing editor, Kevin Sexton, then developed further curriculum for podcasting that's going to be used around the world. And there is more to tell you about Thunder Bay coming up. But yeah, I, I feel very good about what we did in Thunder Bay and what we're continuing to do. What else? In the last 12 months, Jaron Kerr, the former deputy editor of Canada Land, completed his investigation of the Kielberger's We organization. We have never fought so hard just to get you the facts. They sent five lawyers after us from five different firms, legal threat after legal threat. They assured us that they would sue us if we proceeded. People, we believed them and we published it anyhow. Because we knew that what we had to say after months of researching and reporting and talking to dozens of people, it was credible, it was important, it was newsworthy, and the world needed to hear it. So we hit publish, and we got ready to be sued. But it didn't happen. I feel very good about that investigation. I think that it says something about how we're growing as a news organization that we can tackle such a difficult and complicated story. In the early days, we would break these bombshell stories, big scandals, you know, somebody did something they shouldn't, and we would make sure that it was true, and then we would report it. Uh, that's important work. We still do that when we have to. But this story wasn't like that. To get a team of professionals together, as we did, to spend months and months carefully scrutinizing a huge organization that is active in 16,000 schools, to talk to dozens of people about it, to pour over documents, wrangle with lawyers, hire a fact checker, uh, commission research, discuss and debate the ethics of what goes into the story and what doesn't. It took us five years as a news organization to get to the level where we could do a story like that. And thanks to you and, of course, to Jaron Kerr and to Jonathan Goldsby and others, we got there. So I feel very good about that story and about the impact that that story had on the WE organization. I see that they are now more transparent about who they are and how they've changed over the years and who they partner with and why. And I know that there are young students and educators who are saying regularly that they use the stories we reported, the information that we published to help them make decisions about whether to work with WE and how. And we broke the media's larger cone of silence. 
the the Ford government recently gave an education grant to We Charity. And another journalist from a different news organization asked the Ford government some very tough questions about giving the WE organization money. And they cited our reports when they did that. So WE is now more accountable than they used to be. And that will make them better. And that's the whole point. That is journalism doing its job. I could go on and on. I'll go on and on just a little bit longer. In the last year, we relaunched Commons and it has been fantastic taking underknown stories about Canadian corruption and fossil fuels and the elite powerful families and turning that information into like bingeable, delicious to listen to podcast stories. Arshi and Jordan are making such a listenable, excellent podcast. Oppo. Oppo was hands down the podcast to listen to during this miserable election. They took it to a higher ground. They talked about the issues, about Indigenous issues and about housing and about all of the substantive policy discussions that the election should have been about while also keeping you up to date with that election. Wag the Doug kept an eye on Doug Ford and worked in a surprising number of Star Trek references. And our media criticism, the reason why we were here in the first place, uh, I don't know, greatest hits, we told you what went down at Post Media, what is currently going down, the biggest newspaper chain in the country quietly deciding to become Fox News North and move their editorial agenda further to the right, centralize their pro-oil message. You would not have known about the backroom machinations of that had it not been for Sean Craig's investigation for Canada Land. Other things happened. Gian Gameshi tried to stage a comeback again, this time in the New York Review of Books. His essay was full of lies and misrepresentations. I don't want to work on that story anymore, but I, I, I am in a position to, to fact check an essay like that. I still have the receipts. And so I laid out the truth of that again so that the Americans reading this who are unfamiliar with the story beforehand could make up their own minds about whether or not this guy should have a second chance at a media career. That's uh, some of the media criticism this year. Little bits and pieces, too, that I feel very good about. You know, the Globe and Mail decides to publish Ezra Levant, an Ezra Levant editorial, just normalizing him. You know, it's not our job to protest that, but it is our job to ask, like, what the fuck? How did that happen? How did that happen? How did the Vancouver Sun editorial happen that was just bashing immigrants? How did that happen? Why did the Toronto Sun decide to publish the real name of a sex worker doxing this person with a story that had nothing to do with her work as a sex worker? So what we do is we just try to get behind the scenes and figure out how those decisions get made. I think that the fact that we take this stuff seriously and we hold people to account for those decisions, it does change newsroom dynamics across this country. I feel good about that. I feel good about holding Google to account for assembling a room full of, of journalists and reporters and announcing at that meeting that it's an off-the-record meeting, like we're going to have a secret meeting with Google, I'm happy that I expose that that's happening because like somebody has to just keep an eye on this stuff. And and we're six years in and there's still nobody else doing that. Uh, finally, you know, it's worth noting it is it is our job to just boost good journalism. Criticism isn't just about negativity. And the Monday show, this show... This is a place where we take stories that you might otherwise not know, and we amplify them. We talk to the journalists who reported them. These aren't our stories. These are stories that we think are underknown. And so when I talk to Cindy Blackstock about deaths in Indigenous child welfare, or Kasha talks to Jen Gunter about problems with women's health reporting, or just dozens of other things that you'll hear on the Monday show, I'm so surprised by how many people first hear those stories through the Monday Canada Land show. So I think that's value that we present, and I, I, I feel good about, about signal boosting those stories. Looking back on all of that, 
There is no shame in our game. We have been punching above our weight. We are tiny, but we do a lot with the support we get. We have the best jobs in the world, and we work hard to deserve those jobs. And this is important. We need the support, and we need new support. We do. People look at our Patreon. We seem like we're doing pretty good. People figure that they don't need to help us. I got to tell you, we don't crowdfund 11 months of the year. And as a result of that, we are always losing supporters. We lose 2 to 5% of our supporters every single month. Usually it's just their credit card expiring, but it takes a toll. It adds up. Little nips and bites. 2 to 5% a month. Work that out over a year. That's like 25 to 60% of our support gone. Play that out over two to three years and there's no more Canada land. Lights out. If you have been on the fence because we look kind of healthy, if we have your support in theory, but not in practice, you just haven't gotten around to it. If you used to support us, but you don't anymore, we absolutely need you to go to patreon.com slash Canada land and support us right now. And that is the only way that we are going to have independent journalism in Canada. We are not taking government bailout money. We did not lobby for companies like ours to be included, and we will not be applying to get that funding. It's you guys or nothing. So that's it. That's why almost 5,000 people support us. They don't do it for the t-shirt. But let me tell you about our t-shirts. All right. Actually, I got nothing. There's nothing new. Uh, the t-shirts are the same t-shirts. They're great t-shirts, but we, we don't have uh, anything new there. At the $7 a month, you get a t-shirt. Um, but we do have something new. We have a few new things. We have a brand new bitchin' pair of Canada Land socks. This is our Door Crasher special. These are vibrant socks. I dare you to find an outfit that will match with these socks. These are go-to-bed-in-them socks, but they're, they're stylish, and I like these socks, and we have only 330 pairs of them. This is a Door Crasher special. Five bucks a month gets you limited edition collector's item Canada Land socks. We have tote bags that are very stylish. I had not previously put a lot of thought into stylishness in tote bags, uh, but we went a different way this year. These are Bagu brand tote bags. They are not your usual cloth totes. These are non-porous, these are durable, and these are fantastic looking, brightly colored, reusable tote bags if you kick in $10 a month. Seriously, go and just look at these things at patreon.com slash CanadaLand. This is, this is an excellent tote bag. All of our stuff is sort of surprisingly stylish. Liana and Jessica, who are, uh, that's our team on this stuff, they, they don't let me cheap out. They are art world people. They have a keenly developed sense of aesthetics and they insist on high quality goods and amazing design. Uh, so you need to see this stuff at patreon.com slash CanadaLand, if only to window shop. And with all of those, $5 a month and anything above that, you get ad-free versions of all of our podcasts. That alone is why a lot of people do it. Five bucks a month or more, ad-free versions of everything we do. 15 bucks gets you like a whole package, t-shirt, tote, bottle opener, keychain, ad-free podcasts. That's the value option. That's a lot of Canada land shit for you. Again, all of this in US dollars. I will tell you briefly about our luxury tiers. People, they exist. There are a few big ticket items. I won't tell you about all of them. There's just one I want to announce today. For $50 a month, we will send you a bottle of Canada land, The Smell. An original fragrance designed by our own Jessica Valentin. 
this uh, th- this started as a joke in the office, uh, Canada Land, the fragrance, and and um, and then we just did it because Jessica does this. Uh, this is this is what she does in her art practice. She works with fragrance. She knows how to make uh, incredible fragrances. And um, people, it's delicious. Canada Land, the smell. It comes on strong. The top note uh, is a bit aggressive, not unpleasant, but a bit aggressive, and then it gives way to like a smoky, citrusy, like a hint of astringent uh, in the bass note. It's hard to describe. I'm not good at this, but pretty soon, people, pretty soon, you get used to it. Candle and the smell. The bottle is is just gorgeous. It is a foil-stamped uh, bottle. This is a collector's item. We have only made 10 bottles of Candle and the smell, a unisex fragrance by Candle Land. We have never had better stuff to send you. Patreon.com slash Canadaland. All right, we are near the end. I have gone long. I apologize. Let's get to the best part. This is what we're going to do next year with your support. We have only two goals if support goes up. The first, as always, is to give everyone here a raise except for me. That goes for staffers, freelancers, contractors. Better pay all around. Our pay is already competitive. We have better freelance base rates than big news organizations. We pay better salaries than big talk radio stations, but we do not pay as good as the CBC for our producers, or or we do not pay reporters what some of the bigger newspapers are able to pay. And I do not want to be just as good as them. I want to pay better, and I want more resources and training and better benefits and support for our team. And that is our first goal. If we exceed that, we move on to our second goal, and that's what I want to announce right now. A lot of you have been asking about what's next for Thunder Bay. The questions are usually, are you going to go and tell us the next chapter of what happens in Thunder Bay? We don't know the outcome of these trials that have been pending against Mayor Hobbs, against Braden Bushby, who threw a trailer hitch that killed Barbara Kentner. That trial is coming up. There's stories yet to be told. There's a bigger story. Thunder Bay was Canada's dirty secret. That secret has been exposed. So what comes next? Can that town change? It's bigger than just that town. There's more to say from Thunder Bay, and a lot of people have asked us if we're going to go back and and finish what we started. Other people have asked us, you know what? There are a dozen other Thunder Bays. You need to send Ryan McMahon there. He needs to tell the story of those towns too. You should do another city every time you do a season of Thunder Bay. And that's a great idea, and a lot of people have been asking us about that. And then other people just say, when can I hear Ryan McMahon again? When can I hear him host another podcast, tell us stories again? So uh, I am ready. I'm sorry it's taken so long. I'm ready to give you answers to those questions, uh, all three of those questions. The answer is yes. We will return to Thunder Bay, and we will produce kind of a postscript, an epilogue, a coda, maybe one episode, maybe two, whatever it takes to finish what we started. And yes, Ryan McMahon will return as the host, as the storyteller. He's uneasy when I call him a journalist. That is what he has been doing in Thunder Bay. Uh, He will go back to Thunder Bay and do journalism there for us again with our team. And we will partner with Ryan again to tell a different story about a different city with different secrets. Niagara Falls, Ontario is a party town. It is a border town. It is a mob town. This is Canada's Tijuana. This is another city where journalism has largely vanished, where where accusations of corruption at the highest levels have gone uninvestigated. And it's a town with a dark history that spans from the, the Treaty of Fort Niagara in 1781 to Marineland's treatment of animals 
right now. That's been true for a long time. There's something new happening in Niagara Falls. The government of the People's Republic of China has invested in 484 acres of land acquired in Niagara Falls, including protected wetlands, mere miles away from the U.S. border. This deal, the mayor of Niagara Falls has called the biggest deal between China and Canada ever. And the objective of this is to create a city within a city, a, a massive development called Paradise. We want to tell the story of what is actually happening in Niagara Falls. I do not know yet. That's what investigations are for. What I can tell you is that everything that we are hearing, it is raising the same flags and setting off the same alarms for us as, as Thunder Bay when we were first looking into that city. We want to go to Niagara Falls, Ontario, and to tell you the story. There are indigenous communities on both sides of the U.S.-Canada border that are affected by everything that's happening in Niagara Falls. Thunder Bay Season 2, Niagara Falls, will happen if you make it so. People, if you've made it this far, if you have not skipped ahead to my discussion with Robin Doolittle, I hope it's because something I'm saying is making some kind of sense to you. We are not a charity. We don't issue tax receipts. We're not doing that kind of work. We are news people. We're a news company that has found a way to sustain and grow and do journalism and tell stories and serve our audience in this country. If you do not support us, if you don't do that after everything I've said, we still want you. We still want you as a listener. I mean, that is what our supporters pay for. They pay for everybody else to hear this. But I do think that if you don't support us, you do need to support somebody else doing this kind of work in this country. Because if you don't, there's not going to be any. The newspaper bailout will not save this industry. The only way forward is you. That's it. We want to work for you at whatever level you're comfortable with. If it's $5 a month for the ad-free, fantastic. If it's a dollar a month, if that's what you're comfortable with, if you can stay at the dollar a month level indefinitely, as long as we're doing work that you think deserves it, then that's the level that we want you at. Okay, that's it for now. Over the next month, you will hear more from me on our other Canada Land podcasts about this. Shorter versions, I promise. And then we will shut up about it for another year and we will just do our jobs. But now, yeah, I'm asking. Now is when we need it. Go to patreon.com slash Land. Support us. Tell the world that you support us when you do, because I swear to you, every time three or four people take to Twitter or Facebook or Instagram or just email to say that they support us, I swear to God, that results in one more supporter. You multiply your impact when you shout it out. This is your news company. This is your podcast. Let's keep it going. Thank you. Hi, Robin. Robin, you write in your book that you did not want to go the easy route and write a collection of grievances and scream to your readers, let's just burn it all down, mm -hmm. even though you say that would have earned you a lot of love on Twitter. What did you mean? As I started to write this book, I had a lot of anxiety, I think, about knowing what I wanted to say and knowing what I think needs to be said and being concerned about things being taken out of context in tiny little sound bites and dropped on Twitter and that people would not read the book because they saw some random sentence that someone tweeted, like, she's talking about the importance of due process. 
I think one of the unfortunate things that's happened because of social media and call out culture is that we've sort of split into two camps where it's either like, I believe survivors or me too, too far. And it's like you can't come out and say, I think I absolutely am on board with someone being able to speak their truth and confront their accuser and have a claim investigated properly. And I also think a person who's been accused of wrongdoing has a right to mount a defense. And I should be able to say those things and still be on the side of me too. But there's been this hijacking, I think, of the movement where you can't say that. And it's a big problem. So that's where I was trying to get at with my preface is saying, I know I could have easily written a book that maybe people who read my Unfounded series thought they were going to read, but I wanted to get more in the muck. I think everybody thinks they know what Me Too means, but maybe we don't actually have an agreed upon definition. How would you define the Me Too movement? It's a great question because there's. I think there's been a lot of debate about what it is and what it should be and whether it's moved too far away from its initial intention. So I think Me Too is very specifically linked to sexual violence and sexual harassment. And it's sort of as we start grappling with, well, why do these problems persist? The conversation naturally leads into a broader one about equality and the place of women in society. I guess my understanding is at the core of it, it was a moment where women around the world put up their hands one by one on social media and said, me too, this has happened to me too. And by this, they meant sexual violence, sexual assault, uh, sexual harassment, sexual misconduct. Yeah, I think it's about showing how prevalent this still is and the value of going, oh, like, maybe I don't think that these are big problems, but I had no idea so many of the women in my life or the men in my life. It's not that sexual violence and harassment can't happen to men too. We just statistically know it's more likely to happen to women, but that so many people that I know have encountered this. And maybe if you know how prevalent it is, you're more likely to be wanting to have change. I think that is the genesis, of course, of this movement. Your book asks the question, what's fair in the age of Me Too? Let me flip that. What's unfair? Good question. I mean, I think what's unfair is sexual harassment continuing to be a problem at work. Women shouldn't have to worry about that. You shouldn't have to, you know, quote working girl, like be afraid of your boss chasing you around the desk. Women shouldn't have to worry about their safety when they walk outside or when they're going on a date. All these basic things that we talk about, the question is, how do we get there? So the things that are unfair in the age of Me Too are the things that were unfair before Me Too. Sure. But here's the thing. When you talk to people, are you pro-sexual assault? Are you pro-sexual harassment? I think the vast majority of people would say, absolutely not. The question is, what counts? What crosses the line? And that's why, you know, I get into that a bit in the book with the polling that shows like there's confusion or disparaging opinions, I guess, on what crosses the line. So is it fair to touch someone's shoulder at work? Is it fair to look at porn at work? Is it fair for a boss to kiss an employee's cheek? Something like 20, 25 percent of millennial men think that that's appropriate in the workforce. I mean, yes, but you probably shouldn't to the first one, then no and no. Sure. It's kind of weighing all of these issues in terms of what's fair. I write about the Aziz Ansari case. This is the wonderful comedian. I think we're getting closer to it now. When when we're talking about unfairness in the age of Me Too, I think that we're zeroing in on what most people would think about. Do you feel like he was treated unfairly? I've sort of had an evolution of thought. But yeah, when I first read that story, my knee-jerk reaction was, 
I don't think that this is appropriate. I felt bad for him that he was kind of being dragged through the mud because of what I thought was a very murky sexual encounter between him and this woman, Grace. Now, there's all sorts of journalistic problems with that story that contributed to my anxiety about it. And there's all sorts of other you know, lines in the story that I think signal that she was really angling for a certain narrative as opposed to kind of looking at this really serious accusation fairly. But my reaction was, well, I'm not saying that that's not bad what he did if it's true. And I think it's something so many women can relate to. But is this really fair to call this a sexual assault when she acknowledges that you know, she went along with it, that she gave, you know, only nonverbal cues. And I texted a bunch of my girlfriends and they, you know, really tried to persuade me that, no, this is fair. And, you know, if he really didn't want to be in that position, he should have been more respectful to his date. So I've I've had a bit more of an evolution of thought on it. And it was a really productive conversation that we had. But my knee-jerk reaction at the beginning was that it wasn't fair. It's an interesting one because the context of when it came out, where like every other day there was another person being called out for something they had done, and then the unsorry one comes and you're like, hmm. I don't know about this one. Like yeah. if I'm to put this in the category of here's the next guy, uh, when she says this was a sexual assault and to remind people this was a woman recounting a sexual encounter with him and she had complaints about him being too pushy, not reading the signals properly. Basically, he badgered her into yeah. sexual acts, which is, you know, not nice, but not illegal. Yeah. I, I think in Canada, technically... It could constitute a sexual assault because in Canada, you have to indicate, yes, being passive is not enough. But it's one of those things that, sure, maybe technically this could have some legal consequences. But realistically, a cop's never going to lay a charge in that case. A court is never going to lay a conviction. And it's another thing that I'm trying to do with the book is get us away from being obsessed talking about these issues as legal things, thinking of them more as ethical or moral behaviors. Somebody asked me to think of it differently, saying, if this woman had a bad date with this guy and he was aggressive and pushy, do you want her to be suppressed? Should she not be allowed to just talk about her bad date? Mm -hmm. And I thought, I don't see any reason. Like, why shouldn't we talk about those kinds of things? We should be talking about those kinds of things. And I think this is part of it is at the beginning, when I first heard that story, my reaction was very much in the context of the moment where it's like celebrity being outed as a Me Too offender. But now that, you know, we're two years out from it, basically, I see value in that story Mm -hmm. running. I still don't think it's a sexual assault. And I still think it's probably the most common type of encounter that women can experience where they come away from it feeling violated, if not criminally violated, morally violated. And that's why it's so important to talk about. I mean, if it had been handled a bit differently as the evolution of Me Too, like, okay, let's deal with like the criminal offenders first, but let's open the door for people to have conversations about more nuanced encounters, about ethics and morality and everything from like etiquette to just basic respect, that would be a good place for Me Too to go. Totally. That is where Me Too needs to go. You know, I've been doing now book press for like two weeks and 100% of the time when it opens up to questions, I get someone saying, well, what about false accusations? What do you say to the fact that these happen and they can, even the taint of an accusation can completely ruin someone? And I've really come to the conclusion, I think, or my theory, is the reason that this looms so large, this fear among men in particular, despite the fact that the statistics show it's incredibly rare, you're more likely to make up auto theft than Mm -hmm. you are a sexual assault, is that there is so much confusion around consent. 
I think that that is the problem. It's that women and men can recount a situation and say the exact same things happened. And a woman can come away from it feeling violated. And a man can come away from it feeling like, I don't see the problem because of a whole bunch of reasons, because of the way we're socialized, because of the norms that have have been kind of thrust upon us from a very young age. Think of how many movies you've seen or books you've read or songs you've heard where it starts out with a guy pursuing a girl and she rebuffs him and then he just wears her down and they live happily ever after. There's all of this rewiring that needs to take place. And if we get there, maybe there won't be so much fear around false accusations. So to me, it feels only positive and really like positive in a way that I never could have anticipated that this conversation has blown out of secrecy into into the public discourse in such a short period of time. But this is what made me do a double take with your book. Okay. You begin by calling out call-out culture. You call it toxic and you decry social media. You say it's, it is an unfit place to have nuanced discussions. How do you have a hashtag Me Too movement mm-hmm. Without social media. I mean, isn't the entire reason why this happened because we finally have a forum to have these conversations? One thing I try to drill home over and over again is that Me Too did not drop out of the sky in October 2017. This has been a slow march to this moment. I I look at some cases that got no attention, like the Kobe Bryant case in 2003. Something between Kobe Bryant and Gian Gomeshi in 2014 primed the culture for this reckoning that we're having right now. What is this crazy something? It's social media. It's social media. Exactly. It's the ability for regular people to kind of weigh in on these issues. So I look at the case of former Nova Scotia Premier Gerald Regan, who was accused of sexual assault, rape, et cetera, harassment by many women. His trial in the 90s and then up, it it continued into the 2000s. It was debated by these old guys in newspapers. And they were likening it to like, you know, can a Jew get a fair trial in Nazi Germany? That appeared in the National Post. Those are the only voices we had at that time. So yes, social media has given everyone an ability to weigh in on this. I totally think that social media is the reason we're having this reckoning. That said, it's good and it's bad. Things don't have to be one or the other. It is both great and it is awful. Like the Aziz Ansari story, for example, I debated that situation with my girlfriends in private. I would never have tweeted out to the world like, is this really a Me Too story? Is this appropriate? Like, is this really fair to him? Which is an honest question I was having at the time and I hadn't made up my mind and I wanted opinions on. But people on social media, I think, are more likely to just want to have a, a snappy hot take that's going to get lots of likes and retweets and laughs than an honest debate. To say that, yeah, but people get nasty and things get twisted is like, welcome to human conversation. Welcome to, you know, like, like people can say anything on social media, so they say everything. I think my point is that when people get nasty, you're not actually changing anyone's minds. Like, how many times have you had your mind changed by someone yelling at you? Like, I'm going to say 0% for me. If someone is actually trying to get me to see a different perspective, being like, uh, hey there, victim blamer, like, hashtag, you're the worst, like, die in a fire. That's not going to make me go, that is a really good point. I should 
die in a fire. Right. So I like. But that's a distinction between persuasion and information. I just think that there's a way to get the information out. You're right that maybe we're not going to persuade people who are unpersuadable, but like it's. But why can't we do both? Why right. can't we use social media as a great vessel to get information out? I mean, as a journalist, it is so invaluable to me to be able to find sources and find stories. Social media is a wonderful tool. And I think that if we just adjusted the way that we have conversations on social media, it could be a wonderful tool to debate these public issues as well by giving everyone a little bit more space to step in it. What is your complaint with call-out culture? Who has been called out unfairly? It's I'm not, I don't even want to get into like famous people. I'm just saying regular people. I'm talking just in general. How many times have you seen someone kind of tweet the wrong thing or say the wrong thing and then everyone jumps on them? And it's a call-out culture not even just in on social media, but in our regular lives. So there's this one study that I look at in the book by these researchers. They looked at presidential candidates or U.S. politicians and the kinds of tweets of theirs that went viral or, or that got a lot of views. They're using certain words, emotional words, angry words, and the angrier basically that a tweet was or the more emotional yeah. that it signaled to you, the more likely it was to go viral. And then there's also research that shows that it's more likely to go viral within your own community. So you're just kind of preaching to the choir when you have these kind of soapbox moments a lot of the time. And what I'm trying to say to people is let's get off our soapbox and and have a discussion. And maybe that means you can talk about rape culture, but without actually saying rape culture, because imagine you're at Thanksgiving. I've been using this example a lot in this. And like your, you know, old Uncle Bob is complaining about false accusations or something. Maybe turning to him and yelling about the patriarchy and misogyny and rape culture is just going to make sure that Uncle Bob like tunes you out. But if you try to have an honest conversation without using those trigger word, don't trigger Uncle Bob, you might make more, yeah. more, <laughs> more I mean, gains. It, it's a bit of a digression, but like my ultimate perspective is neither of those things are going to work for Uncle Bob. And I feel like... But look at Robin Camp. I have a whole chapter where I'm talking to Robin Camp. The Knees Together Judge. The Knees Together Judge. This is the judge who, among many other bad things in that transcript, where you're kind of reading it going like, who the hell is this guy? Like, this is horrifying. To this remind people, this is the assault. judge who, when adjudicating a, uh, a rape trial, said to the accuser, well, why couldn't you just put your knees together? Yeah. He asked her, you know, she knew she was drunk. Isn't there an onus on her to take responsibility? Like, there's all sorts of problematic things. So what about that judge? So what about that judge? So he was, of course, publicly called out by some academics. He yeah, was, good. He was under review by the Canadian Judicial Council. There was a very public hearing. He went through a crash course in sexism within Canadian law. He's looking at rape culture. He was educated on how trauma can impact victim behavior and the right. account memories. And at the end of it, he came away feeling like... Yes, he'd had very wrong views, and he was not the good judge that he thought he was. That's a quote from him. And he understands that he held these problematic views. And he ended up being recommended for removal and resigning before he could be kicked out. But I really want to talk to this guy to, one, see if he actually had had a come-to-Jesus moment on these issues, and two, what was it that changed his mind? Because that is the big question. People are so dug in on their opinions right now. How do you change someone's mind? And how do you change an old white guy from South Africa's mind? So we met and we had this really, you know, I think interesting conversation about how we came about with that evolution. I believe he has he has changed his mind. I don't think he should be hearing sexual assault cases. But the big thing he said was 
the people he was speaking to, it was another judge, it was a trauma expert, a legal scholar, they would give him scenarios and ask him why did he think that. They weren't yelling at him. They weren't chastising him, telling him where he was wrong. They walked him through his thought process and why does he think this and made him unpack and interrogate his own views until he realized why would someone who's really drunk have to be responsible for their behavior if the other guy is also really drunk? Like, Why do I think that? Tell me, did his ability to keep his job, which ultimately he lost as a judge, or even his ability to practice law depend on him changing his mind? I guess the question is like, and and that I'm asking in that chapter is, do you actually give space for someone to have a chance at redeeming themselves? And then what does redemption look like? So for Robin Camp, he's never going to be a judge again. He was reinstated as a lawyer. So he is practicing law again. You know, The other side of this, of course, is the woman who he was asking these questions to Mm -hmm. says she just completely destroyed by it. She felt like nothing. And 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 I'm sure she is still to this day grappling and and struggling through with what she went through, not just in the sexual assault, but during the trial. She's still dealing with that. And at the same time, I do believe that Judge Robin Camp did see the error of his ways. This was a guy who was an oil and gas lawyer. He had no experience in criminal law, and he's presiding over sexual assault trials with no education or training on this. So, And the other thing is when you read the transcript, I've read a lot of sexual assault transcripts. If he was actually coming at this with malice, I think he would have been smarter in his wording. He was so obviously problematic. It was like red flag, red flag, red flag. They yeah. didn't even know that it, what he was saying. I mean, so, it's atrocious that he was adjudicating that trial at all. But there's so many judges that are like that. But, but the, Robin, you know, mm-hmm. can I, we're having this conversation about how do you change Justice Robin Camp's mind or how do you change your racist uncle's mind? Right. I don't care what's in their mind. I don't care what's in their heart or their mind. As if the, what we're trying to solve for is how do we reach these people? You ever hear the term unreformed racist in, in the context of sure. American politics? Like there was a time when it was politically acceptable in the Overton window in political discourse to be a segregationist, to be racist as your position. And then that was destroyed. The law absolutely made it clear like, no, that's no longer on. And cultural values and anti-racism became not just article of morality, but of law. So then people who had previously been establishment people, who it was possible to hold a position, suddenly that was not acceptable. And whatever was in their hearts and minds, and probably a lot of those people went to their grave feeling that black people are inferior, either had to act like they were no longer racist sure. or get the fuck out. And I don't care what's in Justice Robin Cat. I don't want him on the bench. Mm-hmm. If he's faking it or not, I don't care. But I think what we want is to set new standards of what is within that Overton window. like, And that's what's happening now. There's a rupture in what was acceptable before is no longer acceptable. I wonder if you're not putting too much time and effort into this question of how to persuade people who, whether you yell at them or you reason with them, they're not going to be persuaded. I'm not saying that it's everyone's duty to go out there and convert minds, no matter how repulsive the person's view is. I'm saying take the lesson, and I give this specific lesson of Robin Camp, you can take aspects of what he talks about when we have our discussion and apply that to people. I think there is real value in trying to kind of bring people on side. Me Too was so powerful in that it forced us to address these demons that have been hanging over us for a long time, but we haven't actually made much progress. Like when you actually look at 
what's changed since Me Too? I think there's been a lot of discussion, Mm -hmm. which is so great. But is sexual harassment in the workplace done? No. Are women still being sexually assaulted? Yes. Are conviction rates up? No. There's more complaints coming into police. There's more complaints coming into HR. But it's not like the problem is fixed. So where do we go from here? And in fact, I think you're really seeing a stronger swell of backlash in some quarters because Me Too has become so politicized, it's got wrapped up in the culture wars. So what do we do there? You kind of got to reach out a little bit to people and bring them along. Or maybe you got to fight the culture wars. Someone's going to win and someone's going to lose. I mean, what's changed? I think some things have changed. I think that in any kind of you know office environment, that guy with the corner office who we've been ignoring all the whispers about him, mm-hmm. now there's a shift where not out of any kind of morality, but we better cover our asses. Sort of. Maybe. I don't know. Like, yeah, maybe the guy who's been really, really bad is like he's yeah. kind of looking around. It's the it's the little things like here's an example that has nothing to do with me, too. But like the kind of shit that women deal with at work when I was at the star. I got called in for some training that like a select group of reporters got to go to. I think there were like 10 10 of us maybe in the room. Yeah. And I was one of a handful of women in the room. And I was sitting near the front. And this guy, I think he was like a former FBI officer. And he's now working for this company doing this training. And he turns to me and asks me to go make copies of his presentation. Right. During the presentation, while I'm a reporter sitting there listening to this, what could be very crucial information. And I was taken aback. And I was I'm happy that I said this, but I was like, oh, like... I don't make copies. Yeah. And then he seemed very confused. Right. And it was just this very awkward moment. And then some of my colleagues were laughing and he was confused about that. But it's just like, why did I have to deal with that? Right? Like, that's the shit. It's the little stuff. It's the little, like, when I got on the police beat, I asked some old veteran reporters, how do you make police sources? And it was all like, go out drinking with them. Mm-hmm. That's how you do mm-hmm. it. You build relationships that way. And I was like, great. I'll go out drinking after work with cop sources. And how many times was I out drinking with the cop source and the idiot across from me got confused about whether this is a date or not? Right. And it's like, oh, I can't do this. I can't take these steps that my male colleagues take. It's not like I ever felt threatened. No one was ever rude. But it was just like, oh, it's different for me. So these are the things that women deal with at work. Those are some very specific journalist examples. But like, we all deal with this. We all deal with, oh, like... You know, I've had male bosses who you could tell, not at the Globe, and now I'm getting really in the tea, uh uh-oh, but like, you know, that you feel pressure to like, oh, I better like smile at them or or flirt with them or they're going to get, they're going to be rude to me or not give me a good assignment. And then it's like, well, now what do I do? Do I take this like stand in this moment when I have no power and I'm an intern or do I push through this. These are all the things that women deal with. So yeah, the corner guy who's been grabbing butts and doing awful things that are really overt. Sure, maybe he needs to look over his shoulder. But it's the little micro problems that that are still going on, I think, to this day. Yeah, well, I think this is where, where we part in this. I feel like the cultural conversation, which is playing out on social media, is what's leading the charge and why this has changed at all and continues to be that. Whereas you're very cautious, I think, about 
about, about being a divisive place. And I actually feel like when you look at all the different institutions, be it the workplace, where maybe not enough has changed, certainly not enough has changed, where you look at, I mean, what, what your tremendous work uh, has looked at, the police departments, and you've pushed them to a certain amount of change, but we still know that they're not there yet. Or we look at the courts, where you say, okay, well, the laws are actually pretty good, but you've got judges who don't even know what the laws are. Or police knowing the laws are. Or right. crowns knowing what the laws are. So you've got, different, you know, there's different points at which a complainant, an accuser, is, is trying to get justice or some kind of recognition of what's happened to them. And, and, they're, and they're still failing as they did before. But now there is this other thing, which is the court of public opinion. Right. They have this avenue. If we can talk about Gameshi, you, you write that he is the original Me Too casualty. Mm-hmm. cleared in a court of law, but found guilty in the court of public opinion. Do you think he's innocent? I think that there are a lot of really credible complaints against Gomeshi that suggest he has harmed women. But I'm not going to say I know I haven't done the reporting right. I'm just reading. I'm just asking you Listen, as a person. Who... I know, but I'm a journalist and I'm like very cautious of, in all respects on, on this front. I think that there is an overwhelming amount of evidence that Gomeshi has harmed women in some respect. Yeah. My point that I raise in the book is like the very few allegations that went to court. Yeah. He was found not guilty. Yeah. That trial was very problematic. The complainants themselves, I think, acknowledge that it went off the rails for a whole bunch of reasons. Mm-hmm. So now what's left? Is it because a court weighed in on those few? Does that mean he's exonerated? It, it, it's almost like I think the court is, it's not beside the point, but it's like he is guilty. He is a pariah in the eyes of the public. He Is that wrong? I don't think it's wrong. No. Right. I, and I, because I think that this is an issue I was grappling with is like this question of justice. Does he need to be guilty in court to be a pariah? And I say no. Like if, if he had been found guilty, he'd probably, you know, maybe he would have gone to jail. Maybe not. Maybe he if he had gone to jail, he probably wouldn't be there now. So it's this question of like we need to stop being so obsessed with the legal system when talking about me too behavior. Yeah. Because the bulk of it is not going to be a criminal in nature. Like you saw the accusations against Patrick Brown, for example. Mm-hmm. And I saw a lot of the commentary like, oh, if these women were telling the truth, why wouldn't they go to the police? Well, what they were alleging upon my reading was not criminal. Yeah. If you say, like, well, why didn't you go to the police? Well, what are they supposed to report to police? This was an alleged ethical, alleged moral violation. So I'm just saying the like this obsession with if the courts say he's guilty, then he's then that means everything worked and it's fine. That, that was my point of kind of getting into a lot of the Gomeshi stuff. I was confused when you called him a, a casualty. I, I suggest that you felt otherwise. But this is, you taught me something, okay, before the Gomeshi story that was very helpful as I was sort of with no investigative reporting experience thrust into the role of an investigative reporter. You said what you do before you publish is you ask yourself, is it possible that everyone's lying to me? Yeah. Like interrogate this from the other side. Your final step you take is take a moment. Could it be not true? Where could I have fucked this up? Is it even possible that this could not be true? Is this a conspiracy to yeah. mislead me? Yeah. So I look at the three sources who remain anonymous and Catherine Burrell, and I try to imagine with everything I've seen, the physical evidence, the photographs of bruising and the texts and the emails, and I, I put aside the fact that in one on one conversation these people were credible to me and that, that there was no gut check on being lied. Like, these would be extraordinary performances if they were performances. Sure. But I actually look technically, like, what would they have to do to be fooling me here? Right. And I come to the conclusion that it's basically impossible. And that gives me the confidence to feel like this story needs to be reported. And then you still hold your breath when you hit publish or when it goes, get, goes to publish. And then Reva Seth comes out in the Huffington Post and writes her account. 
And then Lucia de Couture calls up and says, this happened to me too. And then over the weeks that follow, like over 20 women. Yeah. And you go, okay. So I can't, as a journalist, say he's guilty, he punched and hit these women. But I certainly, as a human being, can say my feeling and my opinion is he's guilty. Right. I, and I think that that's what most. People I mean, think. I'm on your podcast today as a journalist. Right. And as a writer. Sure, sure, so sure. My, that, that hat is what I'm wearing right now. But you're talking about different things, though. Do I find these women credible? Do I think their stories like do I think they're making it up? That's a different question than whether he should be found guilty in a court of I'm law. I'm not saying he should be. I, I agree with you that I think that given the system and given the way things played out, that was the verdict that had to, had to happen. Yeah. And, it, and it's actually like a good thing. Like that's what we want uh, for our. We can talk about that in more detail. But, but we want to live in a society where people have the right to a fair trial. And, and and because if we don't have the right to a fair trial, then all the men's rights activists are right. Yeah, that wasn't and they're a fair not trial. Right. But, 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 yeah. but, okay. but you know what? I'm, I'm not a lawyer and neither are you. We're journalists. Sure. And so we live in the court of popular opinion and we shape popular opinion with the facts that we report. Yeah. The reason why I'm getting into all of this is to say the court of popular opinion is doing pretty fucking good with Me Too. Sure. I agree. If we think about these cases in your book, there's this range that there was such a fear of like, oh, anybody who's done anything is losing their livelihood. Their life is being destroyed. We've now got a couple of years to look at it and we can say, OK, well, there's a range of things that, that the courts haven't even dealt with yet. But popular opinion has. Weinstein, nobody gives a shit if he ever works again. Yeah. He can die for all we care. Right. Because we know of, of the extremity, rape accusations, just the worst. Yeah. Right. Aziz Ansari. He's doing fine. He took a year off. Yeah. You know. He got embarrassed. I'm sure it was a horrible year. He's got a Netflix special. Yeah. Louis C.K., he's playing some clubs in Winnipeg this week. I think he had a sold-out show in Toronto. I do think public opinion is working very well. I don't have this anti-crusade against social media on that respect. What I'm saying is that social media is not a good place to have conversations that are difficult. Let's go full circle here. Where are we at with Me Too? And let's look at it from, I think, the perspective that maybe matters most. Tomorrow there will be another woman who has a credible accusation to make. Where would you advise her to take that complaint? I think there's a couple things. One, the media is kind of moved away from this story. Uh-huh. And people can get mad about that, but there are so many stories that we need to investigate and look into and so many injustices. And it's tricky to say that, you know, I've spent, for example, now four years reporting on these types of issues. I'm doing something else right now. I get emails every single week from people asking me to look into what happened to them. Every single one of them is a worthy story. Mm -hmm. I could make a full time beat of this my whole life, but it's just not something I can do right now. I'm working on something else that I think is equally important. But I think that that's kind of everywhere, that there's a little bit of fatigue of these stories because we know this is a problem. So the media's job is to expose kind of new problems in some way and get us thinking about things. If it doesn't have ever advance, how do you keep reporting on them? So there's Wait a, a practical problem. I know this is this is uncomfortable. This is how the sausage is Wait made, that it's second. difficult. Think of your own stories. Are you still like, if you've broken a story and there's been action out of it and things are moving along and you... Are you just going to have like more and more kind of drips that don't advance anything? There is no like moving on from the next story about a politician who wore blackface. That's different. There is no I moving on from the next story about a corrupt CEO who stole money. Right. These are crime stories. People in powerful positions who committed crimes. We have an endless appetite for scandal and crime in just about any other category. And like you, as soon as I published a story about a Me Too case before there was Me Too, I got flooded. Really, it be became uh, apparent to me, 
oh my God, there's so many yes. cases of this. And we have this conversation around the office a lot because people come to us still with these cases. And if it is involving the media, we'll pursue it. And we raise some money for looking yes. into these stories. And, and so we have, we have that. And we, so we're involved in some of that. But a lot of the time, it's not involving the media. Somebody is making a complaint about a guy and it's, it's not a media story. And we have this conversation around the newsroom where we say, well, whenever something credible comes to us that isn't on our beat, we refer that person to another journalist. And invariably, someone will say, well, what about Robin? And then I'll say, well, Robin doesn't really do this work either. She did a wonderful, exhaustive enterprise bit of reporting about the police failure to recognize these cases and, and unfounded was what it was. And that involves speaking to over 50 women after they had been through the system. Mm-hmm. But she is not, to my knowledge, ever being the point of contact for somebody making an original accusation. And nobody else in this whole damn country has that beat. There are business corruption reporters. There's education reporters that there's corruption in education. There's health reporters that there's corruption and crime in the health system. There isn't a reporter for this. But there's a whole, like, this is the problem with the shrinking media landscape. Not to go here, but, like, practically speaking, there's only so many resources. There's only so many reporters. How many really important subjects don't have a beat reporter? Are these not getting clicks anymore? Is it the public, it's not has about, the public cl- lost interest? Let's be clear. Clicks means nothing. Yeah, so 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 if it's not a question of the public losing interest. Listen, if I'm going to has sp- lost I interest, could spend, we have lost interest in this industry. Sh- it's okay, for example, I could spend every single week of my reporting life right now writing two or three stories about a horrible sexual assault that occurred to someone. I could do that right now. I could continue going for years. Is there value in that? Of course there is. I don't think there is, and here's why. This is why I did Unfounded. Unfounded my Globe investigation told those anecdotal stories, but they also buttressed it with unassailable data that proved this is not a one-off, this is a systemic problem. And it's only when you can make it big that things are going to move. Yes, there are little cases for sure here and there that are so heart-wrenching that they might cause action. But for the most part, I see, and this is partly because I'm an investigative reporter, I see much more value in going really big and presenting a definitive case as opposed to one-off drips. I, I think that there are a lot of examples of beat reporters doing great reporting with the drips, but it's the big stuff that really moves things. I have two things to say. First of all, I'm not saying you need to stop everything and dedicate yourself to this from now on. I think that you can be whatever kind of reporter you want to be and doing data-based big, big, big take stories. And the Globe and Mail, one thing that they can do that very few other places can do is is dedicate resources to let you work one story for like a year. That's fantastic. Absolutely. But the other side of your argument that like we we shouldn't be reporting the drips where we do so in every other circumstance, of course. But we don't. I get hundreds. Sure. I get hundreds of tips. There's a special category for this where we just don't, we don't want to dedicate. I get hundreds of tips every month from people asking me to do stories. I think of this all the time, like how many of these are worthy stories that I don't know who to send this to, that yeah. I'm busy. There's just not a lot of people. Like this is a but problem. But you don't think there's Subscribe a specific to your blind spot here? No, I think there's been a tremendous amount of ink spilled on Me Too stories. Look, what I'm working on now is I'll say Me Too adjacent. Okay. Does that make sense? Yeah. It's where I see, because I was grappling with this very problem, where I see I can do the most good and help 
that's where I'm applying my attention right now. And you'll see whenever I can finish this thing. But this is the problem when people are like, I don't want to pay for media or, you know, I don't like this one. I'm giving you a hard time. And and that's because. No, but it's okay. I understand. It's awful. You know what? I think we've really fallen down. Where where do the accusers go? Because there is no reporter for this. They go on social media. Yes. And then people say, oh, this is unfounded and this is just social media gossip. There is nowhere for them to go. When I look at all of these cases and I say, who got justice without ruining their life? It's the women who came forward through the media anonymously. The women who came forward through the media and used their names, most of them had a year of hell, at least. Mm -hmm. And the women who went through the criminal justice system, holy shit, that's not a good story. Stories are so much stronger when they have names. And that's the other problem is a lot of people do just want to be anonymous. Sure, but that's a lot to ask of somebody. It is. And I've had problems like I've had stories that I thought were so important that I really wanted to write. But I needed access to the police report and specific outside evidence that I couldn't get or that they wouldn't give me for various reasons. And I can't write those stories because you do a disservice, I think, to a source by not vigorously investigating the complaint. And to your question of like when you've got a pile of of mounting accusations, how do you triage them and decide which ones to do first? I mean, how do you feel about it as a journalist when people come to you with credible allegations that they want to go public with and you're unable to pursue those stories? Yeah, that is the most totally heartbreaking, gut-wrenching part of my job. I get just so many messages and emails from people, not just relating to sexual assault, but all types of stories where it's like, this is the worst thing that's ever happened to them. And it deserves to be out there, but I don't know where to put it. Like I was just doing a, a speaking event for my, my book recently, and a woman came up to me afterwards and said that she'd emailed me. And I'd gotten back to her, but I was busy at the time, and she wanted to tell me her story. And we tried to talk, and I just, from hearing it, I knew I this is not something I can report on. Like I'm working on something else. I don't know where to send her. It's a story that's maybe more appropriate anyway for a local the Daily, not the Globe and Mail. And how do I tell this woman that this horrible thing that happened to her that is completely awful, I, I can't write about it because it's not newsworthy. Yeah. And people, your, your sexual assault isn't your it's victimization. Not, yeah, isn't it's not newsworthy. newsworthy. Yeah. And, and I have to say that same thing to dozens and dozens of people every month. It's something I'm not sure the public really understands either when, you know, you see all the time on like, why isn't the media covering this or this? It's like there are so many stories that we should be covering that we just don't because we don't have the bodies and the time and the resources. Sexual assault, Me Too, these types of stories are very resource intensive. You can't just have someone make an accusation and run with it. That You do the source absolutely no favors by doing that because you're just opening them up to attack. You're opening yourself up to attack. You have to vigorously report it out. It takes a really long time. And when you're thinking of, well, I've only got this much time or this many resources or this many bodies, is this the best use of it? And that sounds so awful, but it is kind of a sad reality of this job. We certainly have to pick and choose our stories and we pick and choose our editorial focus. I think there's a decision made, especially at like the marquee papers, like the Globe and Mail, like, what are we going to do? Just have another one of these every two months? Like, let's move on. I'm going to say that the Globe has dedicated so much to this movement. And maybe people don't like to think that, but 
I know they've spiked a lot of stories. Okay, but when you say spike, what what's a spiked story? I'm not. I don't know what you're talking about, but I hear people all the time saying, "Oh, the, they've spiked this story." I'm like, "Oh, I know that story. We didn't have it. Mm-hmm. We can't run with it. We would do harm to the movement by running that story." My unfounded series, I think, cost something like half a million dollars. Half a million dollars. Mm-hmm. People want the globe to be everything, and it can't be. But I can tell you, because I work there, that they do care about these issues. I have never had a problem getting people interested in, in what I'm interested in. What I'm interested in, I think, is similar to what a lot of people are interested in around this movement. I don't mean to make you personally responsible or even the Globe hey man, and Mail. I'm happy to wave the globe banner. I really believe in, in what we're doing. <laughs> I feel like it is atrocious that in the entire Canadian media, even in the sorry state we are with all the layoffs and everything else, there is not one person who has this job. I think that that, there's no reason for that. But maybe it's better, like, I'm just raising this, like, for discussion. Maybe those stories are more powerful coming from different beats. Because if there's just a Me Too reporter, I think people might tune it out. Whereas if it's coming from, let's say, it's like a financial reporter talking about Me Too stories on Bay Street or in the law. I mean, some of my favorite stories... If they did, that'd be great. You're dismissing, there has been reporting on this. There has been a lot. I, I think of really good journalism around Me Too. Yeah, I just, but there I, is but I agree absolutely, with you. I feel like we've moved on. You know? Absolutely, we have moved on because it got so much attention and there are so many other stories that need to be explored. And it's like, yes, in a perfect world, we could keep up this intense focus on Me Too in perpetuity. But I actually do think readers would tune it out. And that's why I think the best way to report on this for the media is to think about what's the next step, the bigger picture. I'm, I'm going to say to push it forward, that there's another factor, I believe, involved and not just, a, you know, reader fatigue. I think it speaks to what we were talking about earlier. I think there is a sense in the newsrooms of this country, the same sense of anxiety, the same sense that call culture has gone too far. This thing's gone too far. It's just mudslinging. How long are we going to do this for? And I think that that's a prejudice on the part of journalists and editors. And I don't think it is compatible with the public's sentiment. I think the public remains interested in this. So I, I think that some of those... I hope so, because I wrote a book about it. So. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. Thank you. That is your Canada Land Show. If you liked it, support us. It's crowdfunding month. Go to patreon.com slash CanadaLand. Have a look at everything we want to send you and take this opportunity to become a supporter of this news organization. This episode is produced by Kasia Mihailovich. Our managing editor is Kevin Sexton. Syndication is handled by CFUV 101.9 FM in Victoria. Visit them online at cfuv.ca. Final reminder, we're doing a live performance at the Hot Docs Podcast Festival. Just Google that, Hot Docs Podcast Festival, and have a look for Canada Land's live stage show. It's going to be fantastic, and I want to meet you there. Hey, I need you to pay close attention to this message. It is not an ad. This is about Canada Land, and this is about you. You need to know that the news crisis is about to get a lot worse. You've heard about the layoffs. We're about to have news closures, and it's very likely that we're going to be seeing the defunding of the CBC. Where are you going to get your information from? What can you do about this? You can support Canada Land. We need you to. And so for this month and this month only, you can become a Canada Land supporter and get everything our supporters get 
for just $2 a month. That is an almost 80% discount. The clock is ticking on this. It disappears at the end of the month, and then we will not offer it. We need your support. We need to keep news coverage alive in Canada. Go right now to canadaland.com slash join. And thank you. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Mm. 